Welcome to The Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This radio program is a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible. And on today's edition of The Word for Today, Pastor Chuck continues with seeing the God of Israel as we pick up in Exodus chapter 24, verse 9. And now with today's message, here's Pastor Chuck. And the fact that we read, no man hath seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. And the scripture also declares that you cannot see God and live. I must assume that when it declares, and they saw the God of Israel, and this crystal sea, that they saw him perhaps in a vision form, as Isaiah and as Ezekiel and as others saw God in a vision form but did not actually see God himself, which is impossible for man to do. No man has seen God at any time. And upon the nobles of the children of Israel he laid not his hand, and they saw God and did eat and drink. That is, they fellowshiped with God. And the Lord said unto Moses, Come up to me in the mount, and be there, and I will give thee tables of stone, and the law and commandments which I have written, that you may teach them. And so Moses rose up, and his minister, or his servant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mount of God. And he said unto the elders, Tarry ye here for us, or wait here for us, until we come again to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you, and if any man have any matters to do, let him come unto them." Moses went up into the mount, and the cloud covered the mount, and the glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days, and the seventh day he called unto Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mount in the eyes of the children of Israel. And Moses went into the midst of the cloud, and he got him up into the mount. And Moses was on the mount for forty days, and for forty nights. And while he was there, God gave to him the details for the building of the tabernacle where God would come to meet the people of Israel. The meeting place for God to meet the people. And God gave him exact and specific dimensions and all for the tabernacle and for the things that were to be in the tabernacle. Now it is interesting, as God gives to him the design, he starts not with the tabernacle itself, but with the furnishings within the tabernacle. And so in chapter 25, we begin with the materials, that were uh, the things that were to be made to be used in the tabernacle. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, that they bring me an offering. Every man that giveth it willingly with his heart shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take of them, gold and silver and brass, blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen, goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, badger skins and acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for anointing oil, and a sweet incense, onyx stones, stones to be set in the ephod and the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them according to all that I show thee after the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of the instruments thereof, even so shall you make it. So the people were to bring an offering, but what was the requirement? They were to bring it willingly. What does the New Testament say about our giving? 
that it should be every man as he is purposed in his own heart, so let him give, for the Lord loves a hilarious giver. The giving is never to be by constraint, never to be by pressure, never to be by <laughs> deceitful letters. Man, that upset me. Why? Because God never wants to hear you gripe over what you've given to Him. That's the last thing God wants, is to hear you gripe over what you've given. Now, if someone's pressuring you to give, and you're giving not from your heart, but because someone's really laying the pressure on you, you're apt then later on to regret what you've pledged or what you've given. And when you get the little notice, your pledge is due, you know, we haven't heard from you in a month or so, and, you know, you, your pledge is due, and the church is depending upon you getting your pledge, and you think, oh, i got to write a check, you know, and, and you're, you're angry with it. Man, that upsets God. He says, keep it. I don't want it. He doesn't want you to grudge what you give to him. That's horrible. To give unto God grudgingly or to give unto God out of constraint. He'd rather you keep it. If you can't give hilariously, then don't give because if you're going to gripe about it, he's just going to erase the mount anyhow and you'll never get rewarded for it. God isn't going to take into account the grudging money or the griping money that you've given to him. So if you can't do it hilariously, forget it. Better not to give at all. You'll be much better off not to give at all than to give and then later gripe about it. Some guy the other day wrote me a letter and said that he's here and was upset because of the fact that he went out to have a smoke and the ushers wouldn't let him back in at the end of the sermon where he wanted to come down and sit with his girl again down in the front row. And so he was really upset because they wouldn't let him back in and all. And he said, I put $2 in the offering, and then they wouldn't let me out. So I sent him a couple of bucks, and I said, you know, sorry about that. You know, not about the fact that they wouldn't let him in. I was sorry that he had such a bad attitude. And I told him I was just sorry for the attitude that he had and the fact that he was so upset and, you know, didn't want the two bucks. God surely doesn't need it. And, uh, you know, if, he, if he's upset because he gave it, man, better to give it back. If you've given money here and you're upset about what you've given, Maybe I said something tonight to upset you, and, and you're griping, oh, why did you give the, you know, that's all right, come to me, and you get your money back. We don't want any griping money <laughs> for God's kingdom. God doesn't want it, and we don't, you know, it's a horrible thing to give to God and then gripe about what you've given. You know, I hate people who say, whoa, I'll be glad to come over and help you, and then they gripe the whole time. Or they, they, they offer to give you something, and then you go to take them up on it, and they, they start griping about it. Man, if you don't mean it, don't offer it. I can't stand to have someone give me something and then later gripe about the fact that they gave it. Whenever I find out, I return it just as quickly as I can. I don't want it, and God doesn't want it. God loves a hilarious giver. Oh, how God rejoices when you give. Oh, thank you, Lord, for the opportunity. Whee, you know. Take this, Lord. It's all yours. And giving hilariously, oh, God rejoices in that. God blesses that. 
And you can't give that way, then don't do it. Now, first of all, he tells them about the ark that is to be in the Holy of Holies, the center place of the tabernacle, the place where they're going to meet God. Now, notice God says, now, to make it after the pattern that I give to you, according to all that I show you. Be careful that you make it after the pattern. Why? Because the tabernacle is a little model. It's a model of heaven. If you want to know what heaven looks like and get an idea of heaven, you can look at the tabernacle because it is a model of the heavenly things. So God had them build a little model on earth of what heaven, the throne of God, looks like so that the people will have an idea of what God's throne is like and the place of meeting God. And so this is a little model. That's why, be careful, you make it exactly like you were told. That's why they were to carve the cherubim, because there are cherubim there about the throne of God in heaven. There is the mercy seat before the throne of God. Now, the first thing they were to make was this Ark of the Covenant. And it was to be made of acacia wood and overlaid with gold. And it was to be 45 inches long, 27 inches wide, and 27 inches tall, sort of a box. Now, the lid on the box was called the mercy seat. They were to make, first of all, though, this little box called the Ark of the Covenant, and within the box they were to place the two tables of stone upon which God etched the Ten Commandments. They were to place a jar of manna by which God sustained them in the wilderness, and they were to place Aaron's rod, the sign of the priesthood being through Aaron, the rod that budded, those were the three articles that were to go inside of this little box. The lid on the box was called the mercy seat. It also was to be made of acacia wood and overlaid with gold. And then carved on either end of the mercy seat were to be these cherubim carved of solid gold and facing each other with outstretched wings and so forth, and there the cherubims on the lid of the box, which is the Ark of the Covenant, and thus you have a picture of the mercy seat in heaven and the, the cherubim who are about the throne of God worshiping the Lord. You can read Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel chapter 10, and John, or the book of Revelation actually, written by John, chapter 4, to see the heavenly scene of which this earthly tabernacle is just a model of the heavenly scene. And so these were the only furnishings to be in the Holy of Holies, a 15-foot cubicle that was within this tent that they were to make. Verse 23, the second furniture that they were to make, the second bit of furniture, was a table for the showbread. Now this table was to be 36 inches long and 18 inches wide and 27 inches tall with a little crown gold ornamentation around the top of the table. 
It again was to be made of acacia wood and overlaid with gold. This table was to be a part of the furniture in the outer room. Now, as you came into the tent, you had, first of all, a room that was 15 by 30, which was called the holy place. And it was separated with a curtain from this 15-foot cubicle, which was the Holy of Holies. No one was allowed in the Holy of Holies except the high priest and that just one day a year. Now, this little table that they were to make, actually the, the little box they were to make, they were to put gold rings on each corner, and then they were to take these uh, sticks and overlay them with gold and run them through the rings so that whenever they would move and have to carry this ark, that the fellows would not touch it, but they would pick up the sticks and carry the sticks, and it would be carried between four men who were carrying these gold overlaid sticks that ran through these four gold rings that were on the corner of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, this same with this table of showbread. They were also to put the gold rings on it so that the fellows and the stays, the sticks that were overlaid with gold, stayed through these rings so that whenever they carried it, they'd just pick up the sticks and wouldn't actually touch the table. Now, this table was to have 12 loaves of bread upon it always. And once a week, they would change the loaves of bread. And these 12 loaves of bread represented actually the 12 tribes of Israel. And uh, there, when you would when the priest would enter this little outer room called the holy place, 15 by 30, on his right-hand side, there would be this little gold-overlaid table, 36 inches long, 18 inches wide, 27 inches high, with the 12 loaves of bread upon it. And so he gives the, the, the whole thing that we've explained to you. Then, on his left-hand side, as he would enter in, there was this golden candlestick made of pure gold. And it was of beaten work. And it had the center shaft, but coming off of it, six branches. Now, this is somewhat similar to this, uh, except this thing is brass, and it is no doubt not as big as the one that was made of pure gold. But the idea, however, instead of candles in the cups, these cups, and they were carved more fancy than this. The cups themselves were, were to be carved like a, an almond and overlaid kind of a thing like in the shape of an almond. And these cups were filled with oil and a wick in them. And this candlestick was to be kept burning continually. So one of the jobs of the priest uh, was daily to fill these cups with oil to make sure that the candlestick remained burning constantly. And it was the light in this tent. It, it, it formed the light within the tent. But it really was a symbol of God's desire for the nation Israel to be the light of the world. So as the priest would enter into the tent, on his right-hand side, this table with 12 loaves of bread, golden table. 
On his left-hand side, this candlestick with the seven golden cups filled with oil and so forth, representing the fact that God intended Israel to be the light of the world. Now you may ask, as long as it's a symbol of the tabernacle and, and Israel to be the light of the world, why do we have it in our church? Why don't we have crosses or something here instead of the candle holder? Well, the reason why we have a candle holder here in the church is that the candle holder in the New Testament became a symbol for the presence of Christ within his church. In Revelation chapter 1, John turned to see the voice that spake with him, and being turned, he saw Christ walking in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks holding the seven stars in his right hand. And the Lord spoke unto John and said, in interpreting for him the vision, he said, the seven candlesticks are the seven churches. Christ walking in the midst of the churches. And so it is a beautiful symbol of the presence of Christ in the midst of his church. The living Christ. And though we are grateful and thankful and glory in the cross of Jesus Christ and thank God for it. We do not serve a dead Lord. We serve a risen Savior who is alive and walking in the midst of His church. And we don't like to think of Him as dead hanging on a cross. We like to think of Him as alive and present with us, walking here in our midst in the church, ready to minister and to meet whatever needs you might have when you came to church tonight. The risen Lord is here to minister to you and to help you through this week. And so, because it symbolizes the presence of the risen Christ within His church, this is why we have this particular symbol in our church because it means so much to us. I've been asked many times why a menorah in a church, and that is the reason why. So uh, again in verse 40, the Lord said, And look that thou make them after the pattern which was showed thee. So again, the emphasis, make them just like you saw it because it has to be an exact thing if it's going to be a model of the heavenly. In Hebrews, we are told that the earthly tabernacle was indeed a pattern of heavenly things. So we know a little bit what the throne of God is going to look like as we look at the earthly tabernacle and the things that were in it. We may move a little faster through the remaining part of Exodus as we will attempt to more or less just give you an overview now rather than thoroughly going into these things, try to give you a word picture and an overview of these things. It gets a little tedious and a little redundant because it first of all says, make it like this, and then he turns around in the next few chapters and they made it like this and they repeat the same thing, only saying they made it like that 
and it gets a little redundant. And so rather than getting bogged down, we'll probably move a little more rapidly and just give you a word picture overview so that you can perhaps sort of picture it in your own mind as, as you think of the tabernacle and you can get a picture of this tent with the two rooms, the first one 30 by 15, the golden table with showbread on the right-hand side, the candlestick on the left-hand side, and then the altar in the front of the curtain, behind the curtain, the 15-foot cubicle with this gold overlaid box with the lid, which is called the mercy seat, with the two carved cherubim on the top where only the high priest would go on the one day in the year, the Yom Kippur, to make atonement for the nation for, for their sins uh, once a year. So uh, we'll move along a little more rapidly uh, as we finish off the book of Exodus and uh, pausing only at those places that we feel are significant to us as Christians. We'll return with more of our verse-by-verse Bible study in the book of Exodus on our next broadcast as Pastor Chuck continues to teach through the Bible. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Exodus 24 through 25 when visiting thewordfortoday.org. And while you're there, be sure to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, that's thewordfortoday.org. For those of you wishing to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is the Word for Today. P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of the Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure to join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Now may the Lord be with you, and may the Lord watch over you and keep you in His love, in His grace. May the Lord cause you to abound in every good work for Jesus Christ. And may the Lord grant to you new dimensions of relationship with Him, that you might become more keenly aware of His presence with you and his power to help you. May God bless you. May you have just a fruitful, blessed week walking with Jesus Christ. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. Lord, I believe in you. I'll always believe in you. It is by faith that you've been walking into one level of spiritual maturity to another. Faith is the key to a successful Christian life. 
That is why the Word of God tells us, without faith, it's impossible to please God. It was faith that led Abraham into the land of promise. It was faith that led the children of Israel through the Red Sea. It was faith that enabled Peter to step out of the boat and to walk on water. The question is, what might faith do in you? To order a copy of Pastor Chuck's book, Faith, or to preview a chapter for free online, visit thewordfortoday.org or call 800-272-9673.